One of the joys and privileges of getting to do pastoral work is getting to work with couples as they prepare for marriage. Strong relationships, of course, build strong communities, which build strong societies, which can influence the world for good. So I think strong relationships and marriages are, are important. And in premarital counseling, we enjoy all kinds of topics from the regular stuff like communication and conflict resolution to finances and intimacy. But one topic that ends up being the most challenging and most interesting for most people as we work together is the issues of family of origin. We are all products of our upbringing. And no matter what your background, there are probably some things in your family system that you would rather not bring into your new family that you're trying to create. Most people enter with high ideals, like I'll be better than the family I come out of, more patient, more engaged, less preoccupied, more generous. And at the beginning of a relationship, our ideals seem achievable in a naive sort of way. Most couples can hardly see the flaws in each other. They're goo-goo-ga-ga over each other. Everything's great all the time. Of course it is, because they haven't had to deal with dirty underwear left on the floor for a hundred times in a row, or watching the spouse drink out of the milk thing again, or go through some of the difficulties of life, like the loss of a job or infertility. Their spouse hasn't put the first ding in their new car yet, and they haven't faced living with someone with mental challenges or addiction. But in real life, ideals and intentions are always going to be met with reality. And inevitably, if all you have is an ideal or an idea and you don't have a plan, you will almost always default to what you know by instinct. And that is what was modeled to you from your family system of origin. I could sum it up like this. Your life is shaped more by what you practice than by what you think you know. Your life is shaped more by what you practice than by what you think you know. In his brilliant and insightful book, Desiring the Kingdom, James K.A. Smith posits that the, Christian, uh, the focus of Christian education and formation in the Western world is based on a flawed concept. And that flawed concept is the, the assumption that human beings, that you and I are primarily thinking animals, that we're primarily thinkers. And it flows then that the primary way to educate is through the passing on of information. Give the student the right information and they will behave in the right way. This train of thought is enforced by what we seem to make important in Christian education, which, of course, is believing the right things. Now, there's no doubt in my mind, you, you know, if you know me at all, you know how important I think education is, and knowing the scripture, and knowing stuff, and knowing good theology, like you can't, it's important. I would say it's vital to walking out a healthy Christian life. But thinking alone is woefully inadequate. Why? Because we are not primarily thinking beings. We are also embodied beings. And if you listen close enough, your body talks to you. It's got urges, biochemistry, habits that we form with our bodies, neuropathways. 
Most of our decisions in life are motivated by how we feel and where our desires lie rather than what we believe to be right. Like, how many ads were out there when I was a kid about dare to say no to drugs, right? It's like every, everybody knows this is your brain on drugs, the egg frying, but a lot of people still do drugs, right? Or, or smoking kills, a lot of us, you know, okay, so we all do things that, that we know aren't good for us because our desires are oftentimes more powerful than logic and will. What I'm trying to say is that who we become is more caught than it is taught. Smith, the author of Desiring uh, the Kingdom, tells the story of George Orwell to illustrate the power of practicing in education. Orwell was educated in the English school system, and in their classes they learned the classics, Latin and Greek and mathematics and ethics and theology and all of these things. They were taught the value of kindness and equality, but in practice, in the school that George Orwell went to, there was a very clear caste system, a system where snobbery and discrimination were practiced and reinforced through social pressure. Orwell writes, when I was 14 or 15, I was an odious little snob, but no worse than the other boys in my own age and class. I suppose there is no place in the world where snobbery is quite so ever-present than in the English public school system. Here, at least one cannot say that English education fails to do its job. You forget your Latin and Greek within a few months of leaving school, but your snobbishness, unless you persistently root it out like the bindweed it is, sticks with you until your grave. What we practice with our time and our bodies and our emotions, the way we engage our feelings, will, perf- will form powerful predictors for who we become. So powerful that even if we know the right things, we may find ourselves unable to do them. That's not a new discovery, of course. People have observed this and written about it in various ways throughout the years. But the first one to know the truth about what makes humans tick is the creator God himself. And that's why the scriptures place such a huge emphasis on worship. In worship, we put our beliefs into practice. Now, over the past several weeks, we've been exploring the last half of the book of Exodus. And in these chapters, God is teaching this newly liberated people, people he brought out of slavery and brought into the wilderness, and he's teaching them about what it means to be his people, what it means to be the people of God. As we observed from the outset, God does so much more than just download a manual about how to be his people, or he does more than give them just a list of rules about what it means to be Israelites. He gives them instead a relationship and a set of practices that help maintain and develop their relationship with God and with one another. Just as in my earlier example of premarital counseling, had God given the people a set of ideas, it would have sounded like a great plan. But in the face of adversity, what would happen? they would go back to nearly four millennia of actual practice and training living in Egypt. And in Egypt, in a polytheistic, pagan worship culture, 
when the going would get rough, Israelites would just go back to that. In fact, that's exactly what happened in Exodus 32. They're liberated by Moses. God's teaching them all this new stuff. And then Moses goes up on a mountain for 40 days and they think, boy, it's been a long time. Maybe that dude's dead. We need to express ourselves. So they build an idol and they worship the idol. They try and worship Yahweh in the pagan form. God knows he needs to do more than just give them information. How would he teach his people to be remade? He would give them instruction, but also practices. He'd give them forms of worship. And over the past few weeks, we've looked at several of these forms. For example, God gives sacred space, the tabernacle, a standing physical place where they could come and worship. Rather than merely teaching the people that God was gracious and with them, like just telling them those words, he says, I'm actually with you. And here's a place you can come on Sabbath and be with me. And God gave them sacred visual arts, concepts brought to life, a respect and celebration that people are embodied, and so is most of creation. Symbols, colors, quality of materials, shapes, and positioning of the art pieces in the tabernacle, all of it conveying the identity of God, his character, his love, and his values. God gives the Israelites and us sacred story, the public reading and telling of the story of God's deliverance and faithfulness. By the telling of the story together, the generations could be exposed to a common ethic, a communal story, a shared experience that is far stickier than facts and bullet points read in isolation. He gives the Israelites sacred acts, atonement, offering, communal meals, not just concepts of sin and sacrifice, but practices, shared experiences that bring intimacy. We've talked about songs and poems and prayers, how they express and touch our emotions. And this evening, we're going to focus on yet another element of worship that God gives us to form us into his people. And that element is sacred time. Let me give you an example. And if, if you're able to stand, I invite you to do so. So we're going to read Deuteronomy 5, 12 through 15. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or your male servant or your female servant, or your ox or your donkey, or any of your cattle, or your sojourner who stays with you, so that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Lord, we thank you for this word, for the gift of sacred time. Help us to recognize the times that we're living in as we look back at the gift you've given us, as we consider our present and look into the future. Help us to see what it means to live in sacred time.
Time is to created stuff, what water is to fish or air is to human beings. It's the stuff you're just in all the time. In fact, you probably never even think of breathing unless you smell something funky or you're having a hard time breathing. Like, it's just something you do without thinking about it. And the same is true with time. Unless you've got some place to be or you're waiting for someone to show up at a designated time, you're probably not likely to care what time it is. But time matters. And it matters because what we believe impacts how we tell time. And it's a practice that shapes who we become. When the Israelites were in Egypt, they followed the Egyptian solar calendar, which was linked to the annual festival focusing on the sun god Ra. When the crops were sown in their fields in the springtime, there was a festival of worship to the local gods. And when the crops were harvested in the fall, there was a festival to those gods of fertility. So when God delivers his people from Egypt in the book of Exodus, he gives them new festivals and new ways of marking time. One festival, for example, is the Passover, you're quite familiar with, I'm sure. Uh, this festival was performed with words and stories and food and actions. It involved the whole family, from the, the father of the house to the youngest child in the house. It looked back to the faithfulness of God's deliverance and pointed forward to a future day of ultimate deliverance. Now, the Passover is interesting because it wasn't just a retelling or a remembering of a story. It actually changed the way that Israelites told time. See, they came out of an Egyptian system that was following the solar calendar, but here God commands the Israelites to reckon time based on the lunar calendar. God knew that merely giving the Israelites different theology wouldn't undo the rhythms that their bodies had gotten accustomed to, wouldn't undo the ruts that were in their minds and their bodies and their emotions about the different seasons. So he actually gave them a different way of reckoning time altogether, to reteach them in the body, in the mind, in the spirit, and in through the generations that this is a new thing going on. He knew that formation happens by good practices not just by good information. It takes both. So we can look at each of the major festivals that God instituted, like Pentecost in the spring and the Feast of Booths in the fall, the Day of Atonement in the fall as well. Each of these festivals are rooted in the earth's cycles and seasons, but they're also laden with theological significance. In other words, they're natural, they're emotional, they're physical, and they're based on the word of God, the story of God. Finally, but not least, is the Sabbath, which we just read about. Another form of sacred time. Once a week, these former slaves, now free Israelites, were to not work. In fact, God commands them not to work one day a week. They had worked every day without pay for roughly 400 years. And now, they're told by their new master, the God of Israel, to rest. And not only the important people, the nobility, but the servants and the foreigners among them who aren't even Hebrew by blood nature. And not only people, but the animals and the land. There's a sense that God cares about all of these things in equitable society. The Sabbath was sacred time for enjoying creation, for resting tired bodies, tired animals, tired earth. And it was set aside for the community of faith to gather and to worship. 
Sabbath, when you think about it, is actually a statement of trust. It is saying with actions, not just words, that we trust God to care for us even when we're not being, quote-unquote, productive. Now, Sabbath happened once every seven days, but then there was a Sabbath year every seventh year and a year of Jubilee every 50th year. And in this year of Jubilee, slaves were supposed to be set free Debts were absolutely canceled, and where people, uh, land was returned to original family landowners, and animals were set free, and they could find rest. Every single one of these festivals and practices involved the whole person, not just the mind, but the body and the emotions and the family units. And these practices were more than a way of passing information, they're a way of pushing back against the way that the world was telling time. Instead of giving worship to an idol in association with the harvest, the Israelites feasted and partied and gave worship to Yahweh as the provider of these good things. So in a very real way, time, sacred time, orients us. If the sacred story tells us who God is and who we are, If the sacred space tells us where God is and where we are, if sacred art songs and prayers communicate how God feels toward us and expresses how we feel toward him, and if sacred practices tell us how to relate to God and to one another, then sacred time is our orientation for where we are in the story. It tells us not only where we are in the story, but how to tell a better story. All right. Let's pause a minute and revisit an old refrain. This whole series that we're in right now is about worship. We worship God in response to what he's done. And the good news we pick up from worship in the days of the temple and tabernacle is that we don't practice these festivals anymore. Why is that? Weren't they given by God? Don't they inform us and transform us? Yeah, I mean, they're good. And they're transformative. And they also, each one of them, pointed to something more. And the thing that these festivals all pointed to was not a thing at all, but Jesus himself. The Gospel of John, in particular, goes to great lengths to show how Jesus fulfills the Passover, how he fulfills the Day of Atonement by being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus fulfills the, t- the Feast of Booths, would looked, which looked ahead to God coming as the light among people. Jesus declares at the Feast of the Tabernacles, or Feast of Booths in John, he says, I am the light of the world. He fulfills that, that festival. And at Pentecost, the Spirit of God is given to the followers of Jesus uh, as a fulfillment of that day of Jubilee, the day of God's coming to dwell with his people. And the Sabbath, in its weekly, yearly, and jubilee forms, were practices that shaped the people of God, but they pointed to something greater, the coming of a Savior, the payer of debts and the bringer of eternal rest, which is Jesus. So Jesus fulfills these moments of sacred time. The question then is, the so what question is, what does that mean for you and me? What does it mean for us who are living now in in a different age, in the age of the Spirit, in the age of the church? Well, it means at least three big things. I'm going to stick to three. There's lots of stuff here. Three. First is the good news that Jesus is with us. That's fantastic. All time is sacred time. 
Just as all places are sacred spaces because God is sovereign over all creation, so all time is sacred. Jesus is with us in our work, and he's with us in our times of private prayer. He's with us in all the seasons of the year and all the seasons of our life. He's with us in the sadness and sacredness of production or lack of production, and he's with us in the sacredness of our sleep. It's awesome. And by his grace, he's with us when we're sinning, and he's with us when we're repenting and on our knees before him. The good news is that Jesus is with you all the time, not just during certain seasons or special festivals. He's with us. He's Emmanuel. And he makes all time sacred time. The second incredible good thing about sacred time is that even though all time is sacred, it's helpful to have a little bit of structure out there, isn't it? The world we live in, and particularly the social constructs that are part of our world, are always trying to tell us what time it is. They're always trying to communicate to you what time it is. And if they can tell us what time it is, then they can tell you what's important in life. Retailers have been uh, telling us since before Halloween that it's time to shop for Christmas. They're trying to tell me what time it is. And they've been telling us it's time to buy stuff. And it's time to buy because buying this or that product will make you and the people you care about happy. And by the way, most of these uh, infomercials, if you listen to them closely, they also say, and you deserve it, get yourself something too while you're shopping at Costco or wherever it is you're going. Advertisers are telling us what time it is. It's time to buy the new iPhone 10. Gosh, I really want that iPhone 10. Or the new gadget that will give us more power or more connectivity right at our fingertips. News outlets are trying to tell us it's time to worry. Tune in here and we'll keep you informed from our perspective about what is really going on in the world. And it's from all the news outlets. Uh, from, you know, Fox News on one side to NPR on the other. The, uh, uh, the NPR um, pledge drive was on a couple weeks ago. I listened to NPR in the car quite a bit. And, and it was saying, you need us because we help you know where you are in the world. It's literally selling that we will orient you. You need our brand of news to orient where you are in the world. I'm telling you, they're trying to tell us what time it is. And what I'm saying is that sacred time, this calendar that God offers, offers a pushback. And the scriptures actually want to tell us what time it is. Formation into the likeness of Jesus takes more than the right answers. It takes the right practices. And, And that's where the church calendar, the liturgy, and service can be powerful correctives that can help us. Through the church calendar, we get to hear the story of creation to redemption every single year. And every time we come back to it, we're different people than where we were before. We hear the story in a different way. And the church calendar is always telling us a different story than the world's calendar. It it gives us Advent, the period of waiting for Christmas, which is completely countercultural. Like, we're told not to wait. Like, start shopping now and and celebrate now. And, oh my gosh, Christmas music already. 
This, the seasons of anticipation and longing, that's what's provided by Advent. The recognition that the world won't be made new if we just buy more stuff and have eggnog lattes. As great as you might think that those are, that won't change the world. It won't change the world, but no. And, and on the other end of the spectrum, you know I'm ruffling some feathers, the world won't even be fixed if we get Christmas trees up at City Hall or emphatically say Merry Christmas to the clerk who says Happy Holidays to us. Worldly gimmicks and Christian gimmicks are all still just gimmicks. And what we really need is not to say more Merry Christmas or have crosses on our Starbucks cups. What we really need is a Savior. We really need Jesus. We really need to repent of our, uh, of our sin of our part in a fallen world. We need to give thanks for the birth of Jesus and pray for his return. And, and so that's one piece of what the church calendar can bring us through, through Advent and waiting for it and celebrating well. That's how the church calendar works. In each season, uh, in each season it pushes back against a consumer-driven, fear-based, self-indulgent, and anxiety-ridden story that the world is telling us. The Christian calendar helps us tell a better story. Worship is the practice of telling a better story. It's the rehearsing of the story through song and word and sacrament and prayer and service and sacrifice and food and fun and sharing life together. It is a whole body experience and it shapes us. Stranger Things fans out there, Anybody? Yeah, come on, it's a good show. No spoiler alerts here. Second season of Stranger Things is out. Been out for a couple weeks now, I think, and there are lots of reasons that it's a great show, from its, uh, the acting to the cinematography and the storyline. But I think one of the reasons this show resonates with so many people, especially those of us who grew up in the 80s, is because the cultural liturgy is familiar. The music and the dress and the hair, all the hair, and barb, and bullying, and the parental interactions, they're spot on. This is not a memorable show, because in the, in the scenes in school, you remember what the teacher's saying, or the lectures from the parents. None of those things jumped out. You know what jumps out in this cultural liturgy and Stranger Things? It's the practiced values. It's friendship and loyalty, and justice, and good, and beauty, and life versus the upside-down world that lurks beneath or within. It's, it's, it's all of this real stuff that we resonate with and long for played out. It's embodied. It's practiced. And it's done so in a compelling way. And that, my friends, is what good liturgy does. It's what serving together in the community does. It's an embodied spirituality. It provides practice for what we believe, rehearsal for what is true. When we do a Christmas pageant with our kids, if we're going to do this, uh, this uh, Christmas Eve, we don't do that primarily for grandparents to come and oogle or for us to look how cute our kids are. You know, what we're doing there is our kids are, are rehearsing what is true and real. And they're doing it in an embodied way. And when I feel an emotion or of, of pride or ooh, cringeworthy when my kid does something well or 
screw something up. I, I, I'm, I'm involved as well. I'm involved watching some of these kids I've seen in diapers. Some of them I was there in the hospital room when you had gave birth and I'm watching them grow up and we're all in this together. And so we're part of this liturgy that's happening. We're part of the story and we rehearse it year after year after year. It's an embodied spirituality. That's what worship can do. Which brings me to the third piece of good news about sacred time. It invites you and me to tell a better story with our lives. If your time at work is, I'm positing here, if your time at work is sacred, how can you honor God and be a blessing, even in your cubicle or in your mundane job or in your incredibly stressful job? If your time at home is sacred, how can you honor God with your family and your friends and your neighbors well? If your participation in the life rhythms of the city is sacred, how can you baptize the mundane, bring light to the banal, offer a life-giving alternative to the negative? How can we live into the time that is already redeemed in Jesus? How can we invite others into practices that form us into the image of Jesus? That's our great privilege and our great challenge. It's we're in sacred time. It's all sacred. It just takes some imagination to, to figure out how we can baptize the things that we're doing and, and redeem the things that we're doing and change the way that we approach them. And we get to invite others into this, this life. Ultimately, where the world is trying to tell us what time it is, we have a different story to tell, a different message. It's rooted right in our Zeraverse but the time is fulfilled. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And the invitation is to repent, to change direction and put our weight, our trust, our belief in the gospel of Jesus, the good news. Amen. Lord, we thank you for the story that you have told and are telling. We thank you for the privilege of being a part of it, of being uh, character actors in your story of redemption. I can't help but think of the five from our congregation going to Journey to Mosaic at the end of this week, being part of the story of reconciliation. And we thank you for uh, leading us in that way. I can't think of the story you're telling through Kids in Motion who just had their gala yesterday and um, the, the ministry that they're doing to special needs kids in our county. They're telling a better story through the quality of their service and the compassion in their hearts. I can't help but think some, of some of the, the business owners in our church who, um, who are leveraging their position, not for themselves, but to create great working environments and great products and great experiences for people who are showing love and compassion and care. I can't help but think of, of people who are moving into retirement, who are, who are asking great questions about what this season means for them. Because the story that the world is telling is you've, you've earned it, rest on your laurels, but they're hearing another story and, and they're serving with, with newfound time on their hands and and they're finding they're full of compassion and full of experience that, that a lot of people need. So I thank you for the way you're telling a different story there. And I pray for my sisters and brothers and I, God, that, 
that you would give us creative imagination, that you would show us what it, what it looks like to live in a season where everything in our life is sacred time. Help us to see it and to, and to live into it, Lord. 